Jordan trying to shake off Starks. Oh, what a move by in here, I'm supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Lead pass to Kemp Hill, Doing a podcast about the throwback NBA nostalgia was something that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. I could talk about the current NBA all day, every day. But part of me, you know, finds it fun and interesting to bring up old topics from back in the day. The 80s, the 90s, 2000s. Um, we always put up on social media some throwback highlights. Um... You know, we do a bunch of what ifs. What if this did happen, did not happen? What if the trade had gone down? Uh, what if this team had drafted this person instead of that person? So all that to me is very interesting. It's very fun. And I think we can share a lot of dialogue when it comes to throwback nostalgia NBA. I think it's fun, very interesting. And that's why I created the new podcast here on the Cruise Control Podcast Network, which is called The Retro Room. And today, we have a good friend of mine, Chris Herring from ESPN 538 joining me. He's on Twitter at Herring underscore NBA, H-E-R-R-I-N-G underscore NBA trades. And um, then, you know, we, we are going to get you know, to just kind of speed things up, they are going to finally do that ESPN 30 for 30 next year. Or they, they started doing it. It'll be out next year in 2020. Right. Um, the Last Dance. So I know that that right there might be the most watched uh, documentary that they're going to put out because there's so many interesting dynamics with that team. And, yeah, they won six titles. And, you know, now in the age of Twitter, a lot of people are speaking up like, you know, it could be one of the most – dysfunctional successful teams in sports history where yeah they won six times but it was a lot of things going on backstage and that, that, that nobody knew about and i think we're gonna get a lot of that in that documentary so that is a year away why a year away i don't know but um i think that documentary is gonna be very interesting man I mean, I, I, I could tell you why I think it'll be here. <laughs> uh, I was talking to someone about this recently. I, I teach, um, well, sometimes I, I teach an occasional class at Northwestern here in mm. Chicago. And um, so I was co-teaching one class with uh, Missy Isaacson. She covered the Bulls during the 90s for the Tribune in Chicago. And so she's still friendly with, with some of the players that she covered during that era and has good relationships with some of them. Uh, including B.J. Armstrong, who now is, you know, kind of a a, a very well-known agent around the league and represents a number of, of big-name players like Draymond Green. Um, but B.J. was telling us that 
because I think I asked him, he was coming in to talk to us kind of at the role of journalists and how he helps journalists, but also how he's kind of hands off Mm -hmm. and why he's like that. And I think I asked him, you know, what are your feelings about something like the documentary? Because on the one hand, Michael Jordan is, you know, probably the athlete that is most interesting to the widest amount of people, you know, kind of, uh, you know, one of the people that basically everybody wondered about and had questions about and the controversy that surrounded him in the 90s about the gambling and everything else and why he suddenly wanted to go play baseball. And but he also was kind of fiercely private about certain things and, you know, very well established if you read the Jordan rules and books like that, that he um, was very protective of his own personal life and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. if you wrote something that was somehow critical or cynical about his ongoings or anything else, that he might freeze you out um, as a reporter, that he might not talk to you, that he would make things as awkward as he could and kind of just wait to talk to the group until that reporter who he didn't like would walk away or something like that. And so my question for BJ in our class was kind of like, we're all very excited about this. We're all going to watch it, obviously. And so that's why ESPN and 30 for 30 would want to make it. Right. But at the same time, as journalists, uh, it is going to be kind of awkward, too, because you notice right away that Michael Jordan kind of has pretty much ownership of the project and is getting paid quite a handsome amount for this project. Um, and based on that, you do have to wonder how much of it is kind of going to be edited out or what sorts of things Jordan isn't going to want to be seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think this is all his footage as well. And that's why, you know, the timing of it is working the way it is, is that he held on to it for this long, kind of holding the value of it because he knew that there'd always be a demand for it. So it's going to be fascinating. I'm really curious to see what's left in. And I wish I knew a way of kind of figuring out what was left out. I also think that most of the footage is from that last season that he played. Uh, with the Bulls. So I don't think it's, you know, it's definitely not from 90 forward, but I think it was once he realized he was kind of at the height of his career. And I think the name of it is something like The Last Dance, like you said. And so it's just going to be that year. It'll still be fascinating because it'll be the last year that they spent together. The organization was kind of a mess and, and was thriving despite it being a mess. But um, But I do get the impression that a lot of it will kind of be curated exactly the way he wants, just because that's how he's managed his career for a long time at this point. Now, do, do you think that there's any reason why they're holding out until 2020 or just the fact that there's so much footage, so much footage that they have to put in there or make sure, you know, editing and this, this guy that does not want this footage in there. Or do you think there's more of a reason why we have to wait one more year, the big 2020 for this documentary? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think, to my knowledge, I think it's like a 10-part series, so it's going to take them a while to do that, assuming that each part is mm-hmm. an hour and a half, two hours long or whatever. I mean, they could probably stretch this as long as they could, you know, and you think about the OJ one that was, I think, eight hours altogether and maybe six parts. Um, so, I mean, I, I have no doubt that it'll take them a while to put it together and do it well. Um, but also that, you know, they want to interview certain people um, beyond just the footage that they have. They kind of intersperse it and make it a true documentary and so, you know, I'm sure Michael Jordan, if he's participating, he's normally the most impossible person to reach out to and contact True. for stuff like this. But if he's involved, then it won't be a problem to get him. But you still have other people that, you know, whether they're coaching now or that they're involved in the middle of the season right now, that you just want to give it a long enough runway to where you get everything and everyone so that you don't have a gaping hole and, and the story as it's told. And so I think that that's, 
you know, it's probably more than anything. I mean, people aren't going anywhere. The, the interest in the story is not going anywhere. Um, I don't think there's a particular anniversary that it's tied to since I guess that was 98. So, mm -hmm. um, so I, I mean, maybe I, I guess you could look at it and think of a 20 year anniversary, but I don't, or, you know, I don't really think of it that way. So I don't, I don't think there's a particular rush as long as they know the interest will be there and it always will be there. You know, right. I think that they'll be fine. Well, I'll tell you one thing, man, I can't wait to, to hear what, uh, Rodman has to say. <laughs> I mean, Rodman was Rodman. I mean, even yeah. that season, just the, you know, there's been some stuff written about that, but just kind of, you know, the, knowing the decision-making process of bringing him in and, you know, the idea that certain people wanted him, certain people did not. And, and the, the fear all the time of, do you mess up the chemistry that you've already established with superstars uh, when you bring in somebody like that? And obviously they... They did want and kind of need someone that had that sort of edge to them. Obviously, it was helpful, you know, in series against Utah and kind of just getting under Carmelo's skin and stuff like that. And just someone that could guard him. But um, but it's, it's so crazy to think that, like, you know, with stuff like that, there's always a time where you actually have to wonder, is it even the best idea to bring somebody like that in? And, you know, that they're inevitably going to be people that are afraid of change and afraid of shaking things up for the worse. And so... Um, it'll be fascinating to see all those guys, really. I mean, we really haven't seen a whole lot of behind-the-scenes stuff on any of those guys, really, to be honest with you. And yeah. uh, So Jordan and kind of seeing what he's like and uh, and obviously the other the players around him, Phil Jackson, the front office, what have you, it'll be fascinating. Has there been anybody from that whole championship run, the first three-peat, the second three-peat, that – you know, in your line of work that you have been able to get a chance to sit down with and talk to and interview for, for any reason? Well, I mean, so more often than not, there, there have been every now and then. I mean, I've, I've talked with Bill Cartwright quite a bit at times. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting just because everybody, a lot of those guys were there before the three-peat really began. And so in cases like those, you know, people thought that Jordan's ego was out of control that he was kind of this, you know, sandpapery sort of figure to play with because he was so competitive. And, you know, at the time before they'd won anything, he hadn't accomplished anything outside of like individual greatness. And so mm. um, having that sort of ego uh, doesn't rub everybody the same way. It doesn't rub everybody, you know, in a good way. And so um, so that part of it's interesting. But, you know, mostly and, you know, obviously from my time covering the Knicks, the majority of the people that I've talked to have generally been on the other side of that sort of rivalry where they were a member of the Knicks or, you know, in some cases they were a member of the Pacers or something like that. And so I've always been really fascinated just kind of talking to people about, um, talking to people about the year, the year and a half where Michael was just out of the sport. And, um, you know, if you, you watch breaking bad or anything like that, um, you remember that scene where Walt, not to give away too much of it for people that haven't seen it, but that scene where Walt calls Skyler and she says, what happened? And she's watching the news and she's watching this, you know, this news about the fact that this um, big person with the cartel has been taken down and taken out. Mm -hmm. And she calls her husband to check in on him. Like, what happened? Where are you? Are you safe? He's like, I won. And that's kind of how a lot of people around the league probably felt is that all these years of kind of, you know, having Michael Jordan get the best of them, the Knicks in particular, obviously, all of a sudden that huge roadblock is just out of the way. You know, it's like getting to the last level of a game all of a sudden um, because basically because someone else is forfeited or just kind of not 
in the picture anymore. It just changed the entire landscape of the league mm-hmm. and all of a sudden gave two or three extra teams a, chan- a real chance to get to the finals when before, I mean, maybe they had one, but it, it relied on beating Michael Jordan and you weren't really going to get that or to do that. So, um, so I, I've talked to several people about that. I know I've had several conversations with Jeff Van Gundy about that. Talk to Starks and people like that about that. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's always really fascinating to me, just kind of like what that one season looked like and why I think a lot of people in New York, you know, when you think about 94, why that year was so draining and so frustrating in hindsight you know, they obviously made the finals in 99 as well, but I think most people kind of circle that 94 season yeah. as their real, real chance because Michael wasn't there. They obviously uh, went into Houston with a chance to win the series uh, up 3-2 and just couldn't get it done. And so mm-hmm. um, so I've talked to people a, a pretty solid deal about that. All right, so you mentioned a lot real quick. Um, we're going to go there to New York and, and with the Knicks and stuff. Um, I don't have I don't have an order for this, but we're, we're going to go right at it. Um, you mentioned Chicago, New York, obviously one of the big time rivals, uh, rivalries in the nineties. Very rare. You see that in today's NBA, which is one thing that I miss about the current product and, and, and just, you know, everybody's, you know, best friends and they'll work out, you know, with each other back in the days, Chris, you know, you're not seeing Jordan and Oakley working out together in the summertime. Maybe once in the blue, that could happen. But when they're on the court, they they did not like each other. They wanted to win at all costs. And for you know, that kind of summarizes the the NBA in the '90s, where you had Chicago, New York, yeah, Chicago, Miami. You had New York, Indiana. You had New York, Miami. Um, Later on, you had Lakers and Sacramento and so on and so forth. But that Bulls rivalry with the Knicks, um, are the Knicks the, the the Bulls' greatest rival? And where do you rank that rivalry amongst NBA history? I, I think it's a little tough for me to say that was their greatest rival. I mean, you, you talk to the Bulls players, or, you know, in, in my case, you just read around at what they've said and um, – you know, more often than not, and I, I was watching, I don't know why, but was watching a, a Michael Jordan interview at one point. And mm. Somebody asked him, you know, who was the toughest team you guys had to play? And he doesn't really hesitate in, in responding to the question. He says, you know, it's the Pistons, the Pistons um, yeah. because that was kind of the team he had to beat and the team he had to go through to kind of become who he became. Uh, that was a team that really basically kind of first strategized against how to beat him. Or, you know, maybe a better way of putting it is to make sure that he didn't beat them um, and make sure he didn't individually beat them. And so, um, you know, they obviously, the Pistons had their own run there uh, with the bad boys. And and eventually the Bulls got past them. And, you know, there's been the whole documentary done on the bad boys and how they kind of snuck off the court to avoid having to shake hands with the Bulls because there was so much bad blood between them. We obviously have heard plenty about the, the idea of, um, the dream team and the fact that, you know, was Michael Jordan the reason that he wasn't on the dream team were people protesting and saying that they wouldn't play for the dream team if Isaiah was there. Right. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think when you talk about that, Michael Jordan said repeatedly that Joe Dumars was the toughest defender he ever played against. Uh, you know, and, and really what I would say, too, is that I think the fact that the Knicks, um, the Knicks established basically, they were basically like, an evolutionary version 
of those Pistons. The 90s Knicks basically inherited the same things that the Pistons were doing, where they were going to beat up on you. They realized that they weren't necessarily as talented or didn't have the, the same level of finesse that you know that a team like the Bulls had with regards to their their wing players and the skill sets that they had, but they were going to make it, you know, a, a wrestling match, kind of a boxing match. They were going to knock you down. They were going to make you want to quit. And I think that, you know, even Pat Riley, when you look at the people that he hired onto that staff when he got that job, he hired one of the Pistons' top assistants from that team, that Bad Boys team, hmm. and Dick Carter to establish that same sort of defense and to kind of become like a nasty, tough style defense. And so I think that. Um, since you kind of have to acknowledge that the, the Knicks drew a lot of their identity from that Pistons team, and that Pistons team was a team that kept knocking the Bulls out of the playoffs until the Bulls really became what they became, I would probably put that one first. Um, you know, we've, we've got entire phrases that we take from that series with the Jordan rules and what have you. I mean, I think that that, that probably prompts me to put that on a higher plane than, than the Knicks rivalry. But I would say, yeah, that I think um, you know, it probably is a top five or top six rivalry in the league, um, or at least during that era, for sure. It was one of the top ones because they played basically every year. Um, you know, they did get the best of the Bulls that one time, mm-hmm. although it was obviously a year where Michael wasn't wasn't there. Um, and that was still a great series and a series that the Bulls could have won and were close to winning. Uh, obviously, the, the Hugh Hollins called it. Um, I don't even really know people debated as oh, much boy. as they just kept saying there was a blown call. Um you know, I know a lot of people that would still say that that's a blown call. So it was still competitive. And, I mean, there were fights during those years. The The tone of the, the rivalry was pretty nasty when you look at the way that um, Phil Jackson and Pat Riley kind of, you know, fired back and forth. And uh, Phil Jackson was not shy at all about calling the, the Knicks a dirty team. Um, you know, the fact that you had um, – a player or two that had kind of been on the other side of the rivalry. Oakley obviously started with the Bulls. Cartwright was with the Knicks um, at the beginning. And, and you know, so I, I, I think that it, it, mm. it definitely ranks up there. But I, I think that the fact that the Knicks were never able to take down that team without Jordan being there. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that I think that, again, I think the Knicks were kind of an evolution of what you saw from the Pistons. So I would probably put the Pistons ahead of that. Um, where they rank all time, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think a lot of Nick fans, too, would say that, you know, the Nick Heat rivalries were probably more enjoyable to them, A, because they won some of those matchups, but B, also because it was so, I mean, you remember a lot from it, and there are such key moments that you remember that kind of embody exactly what the Knicks and the Heat were during that era, maybe more so than the Bulls-Knicks rivalry did. Yeah, I think, the the temperature that I get from Nick fans that when it comes to those rivalries with Chicago, Indiana, Miami, I, <laughs> I think I mean it could be close, Chris. I, I'm not gonna lie. I think it's okay. a, to- a toss up where Nick fans hate Jordan just as much as they hated Reggie Miller, but they would say I respect Michael. Like I hate him, but I respect him. Like he's he's the goat, but I just can't stand Reggie Miller, and I hate the Miami Heat. So it's like they all hate each other, which is cool because in the basketball court, you you, you get that intensity, that fire, um, and they they always met in the playoffs. I think w- with a rivalry, you have to 
meet each other in the playoffs and kind of you win one year, I win the following, we go back and forth. So with right. the, with, with, with Chicago and New York, um, it was a rivalry where it's like, yeah, it was there with the intensity. They did they did not like each other, but as far as wins and losses. When, yeah. when when Michael wasn't there, yeah, they won. But when when Michael was there, it's a whole different story. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm looking through it right now just to see how many. I mean, I, I think if anything, the, the reason that you can call it a rivalry and no one would deny that, obviously it was, um, is that they they just played so many times. So I'm looking back and yeah. they played in the '89 East semis. They played in the first round of the '91 playoffs. The East semis in 92, the East finals in 93, the East semis in 94, obviously that year that Jordan was out. Right. And then again in the East semis in 96. And so, um, you know, they, they played, what is that, six times um, over the course of eight years or something like that, maybe nine years. And so, wow. of course, that, you know, that's going to make the stakes higher when you play. But you, you, you feel more comfortable calling it a rivalry when uh, it's not when one team wins seven out of eight times or what have you, or five of the six times. And the one time that you do win that it's without the best player. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, and I think it's kind of, you know, being a diehard Michigan fan now, like it's the same way I feel about calling the Michigan Ohio state rivalry, a true rivalry. Mm. It is one, you know, the teams hate each other. Um, you circle that game every year, but until one team can start consistently winning, it kind of feels like you're, you're hyping it up because you're hoping that your team can pull off the impossible and win. Not so much because the teams are, are deadlocked or dead even. And maybe they were dead even. But, I mean, Michael was just that great to where even if the teams were relatively balanced, that he was going to be enough of a difference to win the series and come back and win the series. And you know what, Chris? I think when you mentioned those series, I don't I don't recall 89 um, right now. But I know 91, 92, 93, 94, 96. 96, you know, that was like – you know the 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 later stages of that Nick team. Right. I think they had a, they, they had a different roster, but um, right. those those um, playoff matchups always had that one moment that even now in 20, 2019, you can go back and ninety one with Jordan ducking on Ewing from the baseline. Um, ninety two, they went seven. You know, Jordan and McDaniel going at it, and then Jordan saying all this kind of stuff to him and. Um, Ninety three, the bull, the New York went up two two zero. They were up two zero that series. Up two yeah. zero. I'm pretty sure Nick fans were like, "Yeah, this this is our year." Me, I'm yep. I'm like ten years old. I'm like, no Chicago all day every day. And um, <laughs> then they had the John Starks dunk, which I'm gonna ask you. I, I'm gonna be fair. I'm gonna be really fair. And I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna ask you. Okay, because a lot of Knicks fans always say John Starks dunked it on Horace Grant and Michael Jordan. If you look in the <laughs> if you look in the video and the poster, Michael is in the area. But let's yeah. be real. Let's be fair. Did John Starks really dunk on Michael Jordan and Horace Grant? Yes or no? Uh, yeah, I, I don't. As soon as you said that, I, I, I figured that's where you're going. With it. I mean, Michael's <laughs> in the area. In the area. I mean, it feels a little. I mean, if we reversed it and that was Michael Jordan. And Ewing was there, and Starks was there. You know, I, I think we 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 have a tendency to get really excited. I even noticed this today as I was writing a story. Um, Jared Allen has blocked. You know, the, the Nets player has blocked a bunch of mm. star players right at the rim this year, including LeBron. And so right. people get so excited when a star. 
dunks on a star or when like a, you know, a, a non-star dunks on a star um, who's revered like that. Michael wasn't the primary defender there and he wasn't even really the primary rim protector. He's in the picture. He gets a late start on the jump. I mean, I'm not one of those people that is going to kind of criticize folks for getting dunked on when they go up to contest, especially if they're not the main person in the right. play. You know? So, I mean, he's there. He's definitely visible. He's absolutely part of the poster. Hmm. That's absolutely part of the reason, a huge part of the reason that dunk is remembered the way it is. And, it, and I think, again, it kind of speaks to what we were just talking about, about how the Knicks never really got the best of Michael Jordan in a series. And so I think because of that, that is kind of a point of pride and excitement. The idea that at one point it kind of felt possible and that, you know, that this was on Michael's head. It wasn't really, I mean, it was, he was there, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't really a dunk on him as much as it's talked about that way. Mm. And also in that series, we had the big moment in game five. And although I know a lot, a lot of Nick fans hate to revisit that game five. And, you know, again, to be fair, when you, when you look at it, did Charles Smith ever get fouled by a Chicago Bull player, or did every single time he went up was a clean swipe, clean block? I know it's tough. It's game five of the uh, Eastern Conference Finals. Referees don't really blow their whistle late in that game. Uh, but, you know, when you see it, did he get fouled or no? I mean, do you? I, I don't. I, I guess. I'm going to say my, no. My thing is that if, and it's tough, I, I've been reading about this play a lot lately, too for some research I'm doing. I mean, I nobody really has ever made a case or tried to argue that it wasn't his fault because he was getting fouled. And Charles Smith, to his credit, I don't think has done that either. I just think people said, man, like he was trying, it was a tough play. I don't know if it's the expectation that you're not going to get a whistle in a situation like that or the fact that he just kept losing the ball or kept getting it knocked away. To me, it kind of like, I think you've got legitimate gripes with other calls and other non-calls, mm. but I don't see that one as one. Like, I haven't really heard anyone ever make a case that he should have gone to the line during that play. Um, and, you know, I, for the way I feel, and it, I'd rather you not make a call if it's that borderline than make one and then kind of have a Hugh Holland situation. That's how I feel. Um, so I... I I really haven't heard many people argue that it should have been called mm. or that there should have been something called there. I mean, and to be honest with you, I think even a lot of Nick fans who, you know, some of whom have probably been like unfair to Charles Smith or, cause I, I kind of feel like that's a play that kind of sticks with his legacy. Um, right. And it's crazy too, to think about that team because Charles Smith that season, if I'm not mistaken, was kind of starting as their small forward, which is insane to think that <laughs> somebody that big, yeah. you know, who, could have been a center, would be a small four, but it tells you about how little spacing and, again, how, how little skill that Knicks team had um, and how little finesse that Knicks team had that they played such big lineups like that. But I think most people, when you kind of talk about no blood, no foul, um, a lot of people feel like he should have gone up stronger. And, you know, I've even watched, you know, interviews and stuff like that where, you know, Nick players, I think I was watching an Anthony Mason interview the other day on YouTube and, uh, I think he was being asked about that play. And he's like, you know, a lot of people have said he should have gone up and dunked it. It's a lot easier to say that than it is to do it, obviously. But uh, but people feel like I think he, he could have or should have gone up stronger than he did. And I think I would probably lean more toward that argument than I would about the idea that he got fouled. Well, they did get us back the following year, 94, with the uh, – you mentioned the Hugh Hollis call. And listen, man, I, I could sound biased. I could say, no, that wasn't a foul. Or Charles Smith did not get fouled. But – 
I, I really, really don't think Pippen fouled Hubert Davis. And again, crucial times, game five, 94 um, at the Garden. That series went seven. But that, oh man, that, that is one tough call that you look at and, you know, we just seen what happened with the football, with the Saints and, and, and the Rams. And man, you missed that call, you know, that, you know, that should have been a foul. But you go back to 94 with Pippen and Hubert Davis, man. I don't. I, I truly don't know if Pippen really fouled them or not. Yeah, it. I was watching that play before we hopped on the podcast, and it. Um, I mean, watching it, it's kind of incredible watching replays of it and watching it in real time, mm-hmm. and to do it with the sound. So to hear Hubie Brown as they show the replay, really for the first time with a, a somewhat clear view of it, I feel like you don't even get a great look at it. Because they don't really slow it down. They don't blow up the image or anything. Yeah. You can't see it clearly, but Hubie Brown dismissed it so quickly as it being the right call. Like, he didn't even really give it much thought, which kind of tells you how a lot of the stuff in the moments, Mm -hmm. you know, plays out. And, you know, just how quick stuff moves in real time um, that you don't realize is going to be kind of a historic, widely debated thing. Um, You know, it, it... you never really see in those replays that they show there whether or not it was a foul. But it is interesting um, to kind of look at the quotes that have, you know, come out since then. Pippen from Hubert Davis. Uh, you know, most people, it seems like with even that, where most people, it seems like they kind of acknowledge that you don't make that call there. Um, and, I, and again, I, I kind of do feel like that's where I stand on a lot of stuff like that, in part because of calls like that, is that if you're on the fence about it and it is a game-changing, potentially game-changing sort of call, I would probably prefer not to see it called, in part so that you don't see refs kind of living in infamy the way they do. I don't like the idea that Q Hollins dies and that that's kind of like, you know, that's in your obituary, essentially, because you're going to be remembered for that. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I don't think that happens as much when Someone doesn't make a call. Now, granted, you're going to have calls that are blatant where you miss them if you don't ever blow a whistle in a situation. True. Uh, like you said, the Saints game being an example of that. But to my knowledge, like I don't know any of the Saints, you know, from that Saints game, any of the officials' names. Um, I feel like had someone thrown a flag, we'd probably, you know, and if it was the wrong call and something that egregious, I think we probably would know names. I think in baseball when people – lose out on perfect games or miss out on like, a, you know, something in a world series game or a world series call. I guarantee you there are fans that remember the names of those officials. So I, I would prefer them not call something if it's borderline like that. I don't really, Pippen was so demonstrative in saying that he didn't hit him or didn't foul him. Mm. Um, and still to this day is kind of said, you know, that, that play cost us the series. I, I tend to think that it probably wasn't a foul or if it was, contact made that it was very, very minimal and didn't really, it was definitely after the shot did not impact the shot. So I don't know. I, you know, I I think it's interesting because I think really when you talk about the context of that play, one, it obviously played a role in the Knicks making that first finals appearance. um, And one that a lot of people felt like they could have won or should have won. But also, you know, it's interesting to look back kind of on Jordan's legacy and the idea that, you know, we've heard differing things about, how much support he had from his teammates. And then this team goes out and wins 55 games without him and almost goes to the NBA finals without him. Yeah. Um, you know, how would his legacy have been different if the Bulls had won 
a championship in a season where he didn't even play. And what would that have done for someone like Pippen's legacy Hmm. um, and the Bulls' legacy without Jordan as much as it did for Jordan's legacy and kind of this idea that they needed him and that, you know, he was the greatest of all time and all this stuff. Yeah. um, It's tough because there's a plethora of stuff I want to get to when it comes to 94, 95. I think those are the, you know, aside from 98, are very two interesting years because that's when you know Pippen was on his own and Michael comes back in '95. I'm 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 going to pause on that real quick and kind of work work my way backwards. Um, sure. You said you were a Bull fan, so I'm assuming you you know correct me if I'm wrong. You you you've been to Chicago games in Chicago Stadium and the United Center, right? No, I was really young uh, ah. when Chicago Stadium was was still being used. So I don't think I ever uh, – my parents have passed. So I wouldn't be able to ask. But I don't think I ever was at games at Chicago Stadium. I went to several at the United Center during those years, though, and some a couple playoff games for sure. Uh, I, I was going to ask you, if you were, like, what was the – the differences or the comparisons, you know, the, the whole aura between those two arenas. But, you know, apparently you did not go to, you did not go to Chicago. I've Stadium. heard all sorts of stuff about how loud Chicago Stadium was. And yeah. I, I feel like, honestly, Chicago, we're really we take um, old kind of old over the new a lot with mm-hmm. regards to stadiums, with regards to yep. the way we name buildings, the way we name stadiums. Um, and so you have people that like swear by Chicago Stadium and say, you know, I I think the United Center is beautiful. I think that there is still kind of a lot of that charm there from those 90s teams and, you know, the idea that um, you still get goosebumps. The same way, it's weird. You know, I was a Bulls fan during those years, but I get goosebumps hearing the old school Knicks starting lineup music and I watch the YouTube videos of them introducing the 90s Knicks with the lasers and everything like that. And the Bulls starting lineup does the same thing for me. So, um there's a lot that i feel about those 90s teams as well but i mean there's still a lot of that and people were furious when the bulls got rid of their pa man who you know had the really famous michael jordan call at the beginning of games and starting lineups um so i mean i think there's still a lot of that there and people get really bent out of shape when something gets replaced comiskey park was the same way with the white Sox. the sears tower is technically not called the sears tower anymore I recently learned that the Hancock Building's not named the Hancock Building anymore. But wow. Chicagoans don't even really call these buildings and these arenas by their new names when they take on new names or when they knock down uh, Chicago Stadium that was there. I mean, they we just keep calling it the same thing. So the United Center, maybe because I was I came of age at a time where it was already in place, uh, maybe that's why I go by that. But people still feel really strongly about. It. I've heard a lot about the noise and heard, have heard that the noise is substantially lesser now that it wasn't the old stadium for whatever reason. Yeah, because it's probably more corporate. You know, the, the, you probably have more real fans at Chicago Stadium compared to to, to United Center now, where it's more you know, it's more corporate, those sponsors, and, you know, maybe the hardcore fans are, are not coming to the games or they, they, they get overpriced to, to not go there. So, you know, it's the same with them, same with the Oracle Arena, same with the Garden, same with Boston, same with Staples Center where maybe it's not loud and raucous because the, the real fans are being kept out because of how good they're doing or the, the the overpriced tickets and stuff like that. But back in the days, man, just watching on TV, I, I've never been to Chicago Stadium nor United Center. Uh, hopefully I get to United one, uh, at one point in my life. But 
just watching on TV, man, it, it, it's just different. It, same with the Forum in, in uh, Los Angeles. Same with the old Boston Garden. Just that, you know, that mystique of those those buildings where, you know, you, you hear stories of going to the Boston Garden and there's, like, no AC in the middle of June for the finals. It just, like, did a little things like that you can't get nowadays. And, you know, there is no Forum. I went there last year. Um Back in September, for the first time, I, I went on the outside. Of the, I'm like, I'm in LA for a week. Let's 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 go drive by the Forum. I went to Staples, but I, I go to the Forum, man. It, it it just brings you to a different um, a different time. Like, wow, man, the, you know, Showtime Lakers and the early Shaq and Kobe time and all the celebrities. But I think that's the part of you know. When you said a lot of people like the new, the old compared to the new because the new just just don't give you that that vibe and that aura that, that you used to get where it was real sports and real basketball, real intensity. Now it's just like, all right, Chicago plays Orlando tomorrow, and there's no real meaning behind it, you know? Yeah, no, trust me, I hear you on that. I think I I think you make a good point. I don't know, necessarily know if that's the reason why. I don't know what the breakdown of the corporate stuff is or was, especially when they first opened the United Center compared to what Chicago Stadium was, but... Um, but yeah, that's absolutely a part of the reason that all these owners want to build new stadiums. I think the you know the key one that you're going to see really really soon here is Oracle. Um, Oracle is a horrendously ugly arena on the inside, and um, you know there's like no space to maneuver, move around at all. And you know, but they know that there's you know they're right there in the bay. They're moving from Oakland um, to San Francisco, which kind of feels like. You know, sort of like a kind of a gentrifying sort of thing, even though they're not going to be in the same city, but moving from, um, you know, a blacker community, a browner community um, into San Francisco and moving into a glitzy new stadium that, you know, they don't really need. I think, you know, they sell out Oracle all the time. Uh, There is routinely cited as like either the loudest or one of the two loudest arenas in the league. Um, you've got a championship team there that is in the middle of a, a dynasty. Yep. Um, and so you're absolutely seeing that same sort of thing there. And I think it, it does make people sad when you, um, you start changing things for the sake of, you know, making it more corporate and, and putting in more suites and kind of taking out, you know, the average Joe and putting in, um, you know, business people that, um, that are there to wine and dine clients. And so, um, yeah, there, there absolutely is, is that kind of feeling that people have and that concern that people have when teams are mo- looking to move into stadiums. And not just that, but a lot of times, um, you know, footing taxpayers with the bill to do that. Yeah. Um, as a young basketball fan, when um, or even like when you're growing up and you kind of notice everything, when did you feel that that Jordan was taking over the NBA, you know, whether the commercials you saw, the movies he was in, um, him being always in the NBA finals, the Gatorade stuff, the weedy stuff, every kid on earth buying his sneakers. Um, when did you feel like, all right, Michael was, Michael is the guy taking over magic and bird right now. So I never had that realization, but I think that's probably a product of how old or how young I was at the time. Um, because, you know, I, I was watching a, a Jordan interview that he did with Pat Riley when Pat Riley was still with NBC before he took the Knicks job. And it's, it's kind of surreal to watch that interview because you have, you know, a coach that has won all these championships who for a brief 
brief moment is not coaching. And so, you know, you get into his mind and the way he's thinking and this, you know, what he's thinking about and the fact that he's asking questions of someone and is asking questions of the best player in the game before he's been universally crowned um, as, you know, a winner. Because you think about the fact that, you know, Jordan struggled during those first few years against the Pistons. And so Pat Riley is sitting there asking him questions like, if you never win a championship, can you live with that? You know, is it possible to be the greatest player mm. but never win a championship? And so Michael's answering questions like those probably a little bit differently than he would now, quite frankly. And other things that he's just totally blunt about, you know, Pat Riley asking him straight up, you know, uh, you're on your way to the finals. If you had to choose between who you're playing against, whether it's the Blazers or um, the Lakers, who would you rather play? And he just says straight up the Blazers because they've never won before. <laughs> and like players <laughs> would not do that today. And so just looking at how different a time that was, that was a time where I think, you know, he was taking over the league. He was probably already the best player. So this was, again, before he won a championship. So this was obviously 1990 or 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that he was doing that, that was 91. The idea that he was doing that and saying that, um, it just tells you how different a time it was. Um, I, at that point, especially in 91, I wasn't even five years old yet. Um, oh, wow. So, so I'm 32. So I, my first realization of a lot of that stuff would have been after he came back from retirement. So maybe like 95 and probably more so 96. My first real realization of exactly where he was and his stature relative to everyone else was probably Space Jam. Just because by that point I was about ten years old, you know, it's it's clearly a movie where he's kind of seen as the preeminent star in basketball. He's on the back end of his career at that point, but like, you know, at that moment right then, and obviously since, we haven't seen anybody do movies that kind of have that sort of weight to them and mm-hmm. are bringing in two hundred fifty million dollars and you know are in every commercial that they want to be in and stuff like that. So I didn't witness. I was too young to have really witnessed the takeover from Magic Johnson because that would have been like when I was five, six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and most of the stuff that I've kind of picked up has been more from watching old games, reading the books about Jordan and those Jordan era, Jordan era bulls, you know, doing research that I've done for separate stuff. It wasn't me watching it in the moment because I was too young. And so most of the stuff that I remember really comes back from when, when he, when Jordan came back uh, in 95 and, and from that moment forward. Do, do you have a favorite finals series with Chicago, whether it's the Lakers, Portland, Phoenix, Utah twice, and Seattle? Do you have a favorite NBA final series uh, with the Bulls? Yeah, I mean, I'm biased with that. I, I'd go with the second Utah just because, you know, it allowed him to go out on the note that he went out on with the game winner. Mm-hmm. And not just that, but the play that he makes to set that up to, to get the steal on Malone. Uh, kind of pick his pocket with a, a double team that he doesn't see coming. Um, you know, between that and, and also he, he just made so many plays where it's really easy to remember the last shot, but he's setting up Kerr and, and making plays for other people and making big defensive plays, fighting through illness and stuff like that. Like, I just yeah. kind of feel like if you're a fan of him, you you learn to appreciate all the stuff that he did outside of just the scoring. Um, and so for me, both because of how old I was and the fact that I could kind of watch this 
and recognize it for what it was, not just at that moment, but kind of historically. Um, you know, I'm, I'm biased, but in part just because that's what I remember most vividly because I was of age to actually remember it. I think for me, because I am, I am older than you. I am 35. Um, so 91, I was eight. So I think for me, my favorite Chicago Bulls NBA final series comes down to, I, I think it would be LA and, and Phoenix, Phoenix. And, and I say that because. You know, L.A. and Chicago, for those who don't know, that was the first NBA final series on NBC. So it was a whole brand new era. Oh, uh, OK. They, they, they got away from CBS. And your first finals on NBC is, look, Magic and Michael, like out of all teams, out of Pretty all players. Yeah. Um, God knows what the ratings were back then. So you're getting really the top two players or the biggest people. The biggest players um, in the world in the in the in the NBA Finals, and it, it's Chicago's first time being there. It's Michael's first championship. Um, then you have like the 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 right hand to, to to the left hand move, and LA won Game One, and then people thought, hey, you know, maybe LA has you know some some gas left in the tank. But Chicago won four in a row, and they won on, on the road in LA. Plus, it's, it's still again you you get Chicago Stadium. You get the Great Western Forum to, you know, big time Mystique Arenas to go for NBA Finals. Um, Phoenix was different because Michael Michael was just on a different level, man. When you go back and see how yeah. much how much he averaged, he averaged forty three yeah. in, in the in the in the NBA Finals, and it's still um, probably the highest average for an NBA Finals, if if I'm not mistaken, and. Him and Barkley going at it, you know, best friends, and I get fifty here, you get fifty here, and they had that triple overtime game. Uh, I think in game uh, game three or game four. Um, I think, and also that that's the NBC era. Uh, you know, me, I love the NBC era. I mean, all their championships were on, were on uh, NBC. But as far as the series, those would be my 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 favorite two. I wasn't a big fan of Utah. Um, just because I wasn't a big fan of Carmelo and John Stockton, great moments with the flu game, the the, the final shot, um, Steve Kerr making the final shot, also John Paxton making a three against Phoenix. Phoenix, always yeah, big time. Wasn't a fan of the Seattle series. Uh, I think because Chicago won the first three, and we're like, huh, okay. Then then Seattle won two in a row, then they made it. They made it a game six. But always always been a, a big fan of Sean Kemp and, and Gary Payton. But I felt like that was a more lopsided series. And the one with Portland, uh, I didn't think Portland had a chance. You know, Michael had 35 in the first half in game one. And really, they, they just did not look like they were ready <laughs> for Michael. And the whole big so comparison, too. is my least favorite. Oh, yeah, Portland? That, that Portland? year was kind of my least favorite one just because it wasn't it, – it, it was interesting. I mean, they – they won that series. They struggled a lot more, it seemed like, with the East than they did with, with Portland that year. Yeah. Um, and I, and I so think, that's kind of how I felt, too. I think they tried to make it into a series where they kept saying Jordan versus Clyde. And it, I, to me, I just, <laughs> I just, you're not trying to sell me on that because Michael was way better than Clyde. And um, Clyde was, you know, Hall of Famer, all that good stuff. But it just wasn't on Michael's level. And, and to, to try to beat him in the finals where he's, Getting 30, 35 a game was pretty tough. So I think Portland and Seattle would be on the lower kind of a tier of the finals. But I think for me, for me, it would be L.A. and Phoenix. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that stuff is interesting to me for different reasons. Like, I think the L.A. series is interesting just because um, 
it also told you a lot about Pippen and like what he was capable of at that yeah. point. Um, because he obviously took the task of guarding Magic. And the same way, you know, when Magic was kind of in the finals for the first time and he has to fill in its center and you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know he could do that. Um, you know, and he drops, you know, whatever the numbers he had in that game seven where they were insane. Um, that's kind of how a lot of people, I think, probably came to feel about Pippen and being able to kind of just, you know, play Magic as well as he did and the versatility to do that. Um and so that, you know, that series wasn't particularly competitive either, mm. um, but it still was kind of an eye-opener because at that point, once the Bulls did that, you were like, okay, um, how easily they dispatched with the Lakers. Who's going to beat them? Yeah. And, you know, that's what I find so interesting about watching these interviews all these years later is that watching how the tone changes over time from – Basically, like I said, Pat Riley asking Michael Jordan, if you never win a championship, can you realistically be content with that? And just the greatness you've had as an individual if you never win a championship to all of a sudden, is anyone ever going to beat the Bulls? And the answer was basically no. Um, and so that that's what I really find interesting is that, you know, kind of that evolution. And at what point does that flip, that switch really get flipped? Because, uh, I mean, they were dominant for a long time. And I think it is an open question as to whether or not the Bulls could have won eight championships had Michael not left. Could they have won more than that had had Michael and everyone else not left after that that ninety seven ninety eight year? So I mean, there's so many questions. You know, like you said, that it'll make the documentary that much more interesting. Yeah, um, it just seemed like a group of management, you know, and Krause in particular, that just it didn't seem like a particularly friendly place. And there were a, there was a lot of ego involved. You know, Pippen. Obviously, even in the years where Michael wasn't there, um, you know, was always pretty sensitive to the idea of, you know, the pecking order and, and in particular, like what he was making salary wise, um, especially when he, you know, he was dominant in that 94 season and Kukoc was there. And the idea that one game the Kukoc got <laughs> a, a last shot called for him and Pippen yep. benched himself and took him out of the game himself out of the game in the last play and. Who goes to the game winner? So there was the ego there, you know. Uh, you know, Phil Jackson at that point was the most accomplished coach in NBA history with all they'd won, um, and so he obviously had a right to have an ego. But if you're Kraus, you probably feel that way too. I know he felt that way, um, you know. And then there's the idea that you know, Kraus had basically said that management was just as important, if not more important, than the players. That it takes good management to put together a roster like that. And so kind of in some ways that being perceived as him taking credit for the success that the team as a whole had. And basically, you know, even before they went into that last season saying, this is absolutely the last run. I don't care if we win the whole season, we go undefeated the whole season, we're not coming back with this roster. And in a lot of ways, it looking as if the front office wanted to prove that they could continue to go on and have greatness, even without great players or without the players that had made them so great during the nineties, it was just like a lot of ego involved mm. and it's, it, it's hard to believe that anything could kind of crash and burn like that. Like I can't fathom a universe where the warriors lose Steph, Katie, clay, Steve Kerr all in the same year. But that's essentially what happened with the bulls and, you know, almost happened more than once, you know, because there were constant conversations about whether they were going to come back and what iteration of the team it would be if they came back and, 
it was a mess. It was it was an interesting team, and I don't think we'll ever see anything like it again. So that so that Pippen Kukoc dynamic. I'm trying to recall whether that was in the regular season or the playoff. I know Kukoc. Uh, I, I that was a playoff series against the Knicks. I guess it. so. Yeah. So Tony made the the game winning shot in Game Three. So we'll talk about right. that game. Yeah. No. I mean that game was pretty wild. Uh, you know, Pippen. Pippen was extremely frustrated, and like I said, a lot of it. And, and you you read a lot of this stuff. Um, kind of like you you notice right away when you read the Jordan rules that Pippen was always really sensitive to the pay stuff and um partly because at a time i think it kind of gets into pippen's upbringing and like him not really coming from money at all um in arkansas and so the idea being that he always wanted security in his contracts and kind of prioritized that long-term security over short-term pay and so by locking yourself into like these six and seven year deals and stuff like that um you would kind of lock yourself into exactly what the terms of the contract were instead of being able to, you know, the, the way now that like people are kind of opting out after, in a two year deal with opt out after the first year, LeBron's done it. Durant's done it with the, with an eye on the idea of being able to earn as much as you possibly can. People being worried a little bit less about getting injured and stuff like that. And just worrying about payday and flexibility. It wasn't like that at that time. And so Pippen, basically had you know re-upped at one point with his contract and then when the bulls went out and got ku coach which that was a whole controversial thing too pippen and michael were both really frustrated if you watch um the the dream team documentary that was kind of made about that mm-hmm. um, or you read the dream team book that jack mccallum put together um you you read about the fact that jerry Krause brought ku coach over from croatia And he was supposed to be this huge deal, but because of some of those sensitivities that Pippen had and, you know, the idea that Kraus was touting Kukoc as like this next big thing when the Bulls were already a championship team, they went out of their way to basically embarrass Kukoc when they played against him in the Olympics. And then when he got there, even when Jordan uh, stepped out and was gone for that one season, that Pippen still kind of wanted to be the top dog and that still mattered to him a great deal. And so um, the fact that Basically, Kukoc was shooting better that particular night that um, Phil Jackson wanted to put the hands of the ball in the hands of Kukoc. Um, and, you know, in some ways that's smart, A, because Kukoc was playing well, but also B, because Pippen was kind of viewed as a top five player at the time. The idea that he can at least be a decoy, the idea that Pippen took himself out um, in a series that was a, a, a very tight contested series uh, – I mean, it's pretty like I can't imagine what Twitter would do in a situation like that now. Oh, yeah, stuff like that now. If and when we see the slightest bit of angst with anyone, Draymond and KD or, or elsewhere, um, it makes huge news and it kind of splinters teams. And I think probably now even more so than then. But uh, but yeah, Pippen was very petty about it. He apologized after the game, <laughs> and maybe it's easier to apologize after you lose and you see it doesn't work. But um, or you see that it does work and that you weren't a part of it, but. Uh, yeah, Pippen was a really interesting person uh, because of a lot of that stuff. And in a lot of ways, you know, he probably felt as if he kind of proved himself already enough to where it shouldn't be a question of who gets the last shot, uh, particularly because of that 94 season he had without Jordan winning the MVP in the All-Star game and being, you know, one of the top uh, MVP contenders. Season. Now, real quick, I, I, there are some stuff 
there are some interesting things about Pippen I want to get to, but you mentioned twice about Pat Riley interviewing Michael. I'm trying to remember, did, did Pat Riley interview Michael while he was coaching the Lakers, the Knicks? Like where? where? No, no, no. This was so. So Pat Riley took. Um, I can't remember if it was one year or two years off. I, I think it was maybe one full season that he took off, and so he was working with. NBC, right, he was kind of like right, right. a co-worker and like an understudy of Bob Costas in some ways in the studio. But the same way that you see now, the, a couple times where Magic would do an interview for ESPN for a Sunday conversation, he might interview Kobe or the way that um, a lot of these guys interview each other, that they would use big basketball figures or former basketball figures to interview a current player just because it puts the player more at ease. They can talk about the X's and O's a little bit more if they want to. And they know what they're talking about, but also the respect level that a lot of these players would have for the former figures that were only a year or two removed from the league. So Pat Riley was out of the league entirely at the time. Uh, This was 1991, I'm pretty sure. And if I'm remembering correctly, it was they were airing a halftime interview, not live, but like a studio interview that he'd done with Pat Riley. Mm -hmm. And um, he... Michael and the Bulls had already advanced, and I think they were already in the finals. And I think out west, they were still waiting to see who was going to advance. And so, like I said, uh, Riley asked him, do you have a preference as to who you'd be playing right. between the Blazers and the the Lakers? The and Lakers. so I think that uh, – well, I know that year the Lakers obviously won, uh, but I don't know if – I don't know. I assume that that had to be the Western Conference matchup, the Western Conference Finals matchup that season. Yeah. And Riley was asking him about it in advance of that. And like I said, Jordan answered that he wanted to play the Blazers because they didn't have the experience of having been that far in the playoffs before. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, his last- so Riley wasn't coaching. Riley was still at another. I guess he took that job maybe a few months later with the Knicks. Um, and coached that 91-92 season. But, yeah, he wasn't coaching yet. Yeah, 89-90, L.A. Then there's no 90-91 there's no season because that's the one he took off. And then he came back in 91-92 with the Knicks. You're right. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I do recall seeing Pat on, on, on the NBC. I'm like, I'm trying to figure out what year that was. But, you know, now I know it's the 90 Yeah, I mean, because he, he, you know, and I don't think it's talked about a whole lot the way he left the, the Lakers job. But, like, he, he resigned from that job and he just felt burnt out. He felt like their, you know, ego was starting to become an issue, not just with the players, but also with himself. Mm. Because I think he won four championships as the head coach there. And then, you know, a really frustrating exit from the playoffs one year where I think they lost to Phoenix. And I want to say Riley just punched a, a mirror and his hand was bloody and everything. Um, and so he, he just kind of said that he'd kind of stuff and run its course um, and that he was getting too emotional and too spent by – you know, the wins and the losses after all the success they'd had. So he took time off, but he knew that he wanted to get back into it. He kind of had been scouting out the different options he'd have and, and obviously eventually had a, a conversation with Dave Checkets um, and, you know, kind of was teasing. Both sides were kind of teasing each other about the opportunity um, to become the Knicks coach and obviously did it shortly after that. But, yeah, it's, I always find it really interesting to kind of look back at those small gaps where someone – I mean, really, that was the only two-year stretch that Pat Riley was out of basketball entirely from the time that he was in the NBA, really. I mean, he I guess he was an announcer. He was a radio announcer with Chick Hearn for like a year or two. 
Um, and so really from the time that he was in the NBA till now, he's only had maybe three full years where he wasn't really, yeah, you know, having some impact on the roster, whether it was as a coach or, you know, as a team president or what have you. But I mean, hearing him interview, you know, one of the all time greats before he was really labeled as the goat is always really interesting to me to look back at stuff like that. I always felt that Scotty, um, you know, his 1994 season without Michael was phenomenal. He averaged 22 a game, nine rebounds, uh, like six assists, three steals, all-star, all-star MVP. Was, uh, you mentioned, one blown call away from going to at least the Eastern Conference Finals. No telling if they would have went to the Finals because then they would have ran into the Houston Rockets. But I always felt his, his that season was very – it's still underrated. It doesn't get – talked about as much um, because again the cloud of like all right now you you're without Michael what can you do you know with this set of team uh, of, of players and lead them to to the finals or to a to a conference championship um, with those numbers and all-star MVP one game away from the conference finals and then again you know Olajuwon was the MVP I think Pippen was third Olajuwon was getting 27-11 four blocks a game. I think David Robinson was second that year yeah yeah David Robinson plus you know Scotty uh, the Bulls were third in the Eastern Conference for, you know with 55 wins so at least they were top four but I think for me that season alone gets to be underrated because they did not go to the finals or they did not go to the conference finals and the Rockets won and, you know, the Knicks beat them of all teams. So um, am I in the right that feeling that Scottie Pippen's 1994 season goes a bit or a lot underrated? You know, I, I actually don't necessarily know that, that it was. I mean, I, I think really if you're talking more broadly like the average fan, maybe. Um, but I, I think around the league and like, in the basketball circles, I think he was fully appreciated for what he was doing. I mean, I think he really what he needed to show was that he could keep them afloat. I mean, I think you would have had a different question about his legacy. And I think the bulls legacy as a whole, like if the bulls had just missed the playoffs or something, the fact that he kept them like a top tier team, uh, because the other thing too, like the bulls, the one thing that they kind of did that, um, that I don't think most people really care about now like, we don't think any less of the Warriors now if they don't finish as a top seed, in part because it really doesn't matter where they're seated. They can win regardless. Um, the Bulls, on the other hand, when you look at them, especially in that second three-peat, I mean, they were dynamite every year. They were winning 60 games every year. So it was not – and obviously 72 in one of those years. So um, the fact that he kept them, you know, a 50-win team um, and that they only were, like, what, four games worse than they had, had been – the year before something crazy like that. Um, if anything, I mean, I know my, my good friend Robin Lundberg there that does radio and, and does hosting and stuff like that. I mean, he's of the opinion he's used that season and kind of how great Pippen was as a, a, a means of saying that LeBron already has surpassed Michael Jordan because LeBron didn't ever have a player of Scottie Pippen's caliber. So I think a lot of people look at that season and, and see it for what it was that Pippen was incredible. Um, you know, you, you do some searches around that, that stuff. And I think SB Nation did a, a whole blog post on the idea that Pippen, you know, was the, the second best player of the 90s and kind of cemented himself as that during the time that Jordan was out. 
you read what Phil Jackson had to say, and he basically said that, um, you know, the way Pippen expanded his game during that season, uh, you know, that he became a superstar in his own right during that season. Obviously, winning the All-Star Game MVP, being um, a top, you know, a top contender for the MVP award for the regular season, uh, and, and kind of having to spread his wings a little bit more and do some of the things that um, that Michael Jordan had done to try to keep the team afloat, not just afloat, but to kind of keep them a top-tier team and having them within striking distance of getting back to the final. So I, I tend to think that, you know, he probably could have done even more than he did that season. He wasn't a particularly selfish player. You know, obviously we just got to talk about the whole coach thing. Yeah. But as far as the way he handled the ball and, you know, he was not a selfish player. He passed the ball quite a bit. He was not gunning to try to, you know, to score 30 points a game. He was never that sort of player. Um, so I, I I think he got proper due um, that year. And I think really for his career, he was a great player and continued to be a really, really great player, even when he went west after the Bulls mm. uh, stretch, where he was still very, very useful, still, you know, played a key role in almost getting Portland over that hump uh, west. So I, I tend to think that he is kind of rated appropriately. And every now and then I, I feel like I see people that question how good he actually was. And I, I tend to think that they couldn't have watched him play if you thought that, because you don't have people that are as versatile as he is that, you know, the only thing, and, and this is interesting that, you know, when you read around, I think, I think Phil might've been the one to say, or someone else that they really, the only thing that Scotty wasn't as good at with regards to like comparing him and Michael was that, Michael was obviously hands down a better score and Michael could kind of do more of what he wanted in a one-on-one scenario. Uh, he had a, a greater arsenal on offense, but outside of that Pippen pretty much could do the other stuff that Michael yeah. could do. Uh, I mean, he obviously could kind of play the point forward. He was taller. He was longer. He was incredibly athletic. He could guard multiple positions. Like he would fit today's game really, really well because of all the stuff that he could do. Um, you know, probably had better range um, than Michael did, although he wasn't really a great three-point shooter himself either. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's like a weird sort of thing because I think he was rated appropriately, but I, I get why some people would say that he was underrated because he was never – He maybe for that one year you talked about as being the best player in the league. But mm. other than that, he was overshadowed by the player that was standing next to him. Which side are you on, Chris, where, you know, I'm pretty sure you – some friends – people on social media uh, bring up the topic where if Michael does not retire in, in 1993, that some feel Chicago would have won eight in a row, would have won at least seven championships, um, or some feel like they might not have beaten the Houston Rockets in 1994 and 1995. Different variables, different factors. The Rockets were superb. Olajuwon was on a different level. Um, which side are you on, man? We're talking 94, 95, Chicago, Houston. If they were, you know, do 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 both teams even get to the finals that year um, with Michael Jordan um, on on the Chicago Bull roster? And if they if that were to happen, I know we're playing hypothetically and all that, but talk about it because some feel the Rockets had a better team, like who was going to stop Olajuwon, who, you know, Robert Ory was up and coming, San Cassell, Kenny Smith, and then they, they get Clyde the following year, this, this Vernon Maxwell. So they had a really, really great roster. Chicago always had always had a great roster. 
Uh, maybe, you know, at the winning of three P could have gone for four or five in a row. And it's tough to, you know, it, 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 Chris, it's tough to win one championship. Imagine winning eight in a row. I don't yeah. know. So which side are you on? The Rockets still get two or Bulls get eight or Bulls get seven. <laughs> so I'm, so I'm definitely of the opinion that the Bulls probably, and you know, maybe Nick fans wouldn't want to hear it, that they probably would have made the finals at least. I mean, Michael, mm-hmm. Michael wasn't in good enough basketball shape, obviously to get it done when he came back in the middle, really at the end of that one season in 95. Um, I think the first game was against the Pacers. And then obviously he had the, the 55 point game against the Knicks a couple of games later. Um, you know, I think obviously if, if the Bulls were able to take the, the Knicks to seven games and we talked about the Hugh Hollins call, like I think they, the, the Bulls, I don't know if they had a psychological edge on the Knicks, but I think Michael probably would have given them that and, and generally at least gave them like a skill advantage over the Knicks. And so they would have made it to the finals, I think, at least at least one of those years. And I think they probably would have fared a lot better, you know, against the Magic. And I think the Pacers made it to the finals um, that one year. But I, I don't know. It's crazy. I don't know how I feel. Or actually, no, I take that back. I'm sorry. That's said the Pacers. The Magic made it to the finals in 95. Um, yeah. I don't know if the, the Bulls would have beaten um, the Rockets because, yeah, I mean, Michael would be a handful for anybody. We know that. That's not really uh, breaking news. But the Bulls, I mean, the one place that they were really thin, always kind of, you know, early Jordan years, late Jordan years, they never really had that much in the post. I mean, they, after a while, they kind of got guys that were bigger and, you know, could just kind of hold guys up in the post, but they weren't, they definitely weren't scoring much and they weren't the most nimble. And so, I mean, if you take a guy like Olajuwon, who really gave it to Pat Ewing, in, in the finals, oh, you know, yeah. as oh, great yeah. a player as Patrick Ewing was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and he had his moments in the finals as well. Uh, Olajuwon was just kind of on a different level and, you know, made a couple of really huge game-saving plays. Obviously, the, the fingertip block that he made on Starks there at the, the three-point line. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'd like to think that the Bulls would have gotten at least one of those, but um, I don't think it would have been as automatic as just saying the Bulls would have, you know, rolled through Houston. Houston was kind of playing a different style than a lot of teams were, where they were spacing the floor a lot more. Um, they were a team, I, I think they were the only team up until we saw the Warriors a few years ago um, who was winning with, you know, using the three-point shot so much more than everybody else. And so I don't, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that the Bulls would have won both of those years. I, I assume that they would have found a way to get it done, at least one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting argument to make. Um you know, I, again, the, the fact that Jordan came back and wasn't, you know, in, in tip-top basketball shape and in a, in a rhythm or anything like that, the fact that they lost to a team with a dominant center in 95, I, you know, obviously Shaq is totally different than Akeem Olajuwon, but mm-hmm. I'd like to think that the Rockets might have gotten one of those titles, if not both. Um, so I don't, I don't, I really don't think the Bulls would have won eight in a row, but I do think that they probably would have found a way to win at least seven of eight. I think most would say they would have had confidence in the Bulls 1995 because, you know, Jordan coming back from baseball and, you know, he, he, he drops the infamous double nickel on the Knicks at the garden, just five games in. And, you know, uh, Chris, if there's a game or a couple of games that I, I always 
watch whenever it's on NBA TV or ESPN Classic and from start to finish, it's that double nickel game. And it's like, man, like how can you be away from the sport for a year and a half, come back five games in, and you drop 55 again? It could be the aura of, of the Garden. It could be the aura of the Knicks. And, you know, he always has that cerebral advantage over New York and that game is so classic, man, and it's um one of those games that you kind of wish that social media was there back in that day because now anybody who comes to the Garden, Kobe can get 61 recently as James Harden getting 61 at the Garden, uh, Melo with 62, and Twitter and social media ha- was around during that time. But kind of put yourself in in a, in a spot where it, it is 95, Chris. And Jordan does the I'm back, you know, for against Indiana. And then like a week and a half later, he's at, a, at the Garden for 55. Just imagine how NBA Twitter would be if Jordan did that I'm back and gets 55 against the Knicks. <laughs> um, I mean, it's kind of hard to even imagine just because it wouldn't. I, I mean, Twitter would probably still be buzzing all these years later about that performance. Uh, I mean, so we, we haven't, you know, it's, it's it's funny because I think every now and then I'll log on Twitter and people kind of pray for craziness to happen just because they remember, um, you know, how they felt and kind of they wish that those moments could be relived on Twitter. Um and so, I mean, there, there are plenty, really, when you think about it. Not ones that maybe individual performances like those, but you think about, you know, obviously the Cavs coming back from 3-1 uh, to beat the Warriors and, yeah. you know, all the jokes that were made about that. Um, you know, I, I think about the 81-point performance that Kobe had and how interesting that would be to watch. Or if someone got close to the idea of doing that or having a 100-point game, um, you know, the, the sort of buzz that would get. But particularly if it was like someone like Kobe or if it was LeBron, the sort of attention that would attract. Um, Michael getting 55 at the Garden, uh, fresh out of a retirement uh, where people didn't want him to leave anyway. Maybe fans from other teams did, but like the league certainly didn't, you know, from a rating standpoint, didn't want him to. And the league was thrilled when he came back for obvious reasons. Um the only thing that I can really think about, like when you you kind of gave me a heads up that we we're going to talk about this, I immediately searched for uh, TV ratings stuff, information um, relating to that game. And okay. when I pulled it up, the first thing that came up was the Jeremy Lin uh, games where he MSG. If you remember, MSG had had some sort of. Uh, they were having some sort of standoff a couple years ago, or I guess yeah, this was like six years ago. Right. And so there were some people that were like missing out on MSG because of the, I, I can't remember what it was that, that was happening, but some people weren't getting MSG because of it. And people were like basically deciding to just pony up and, and resubscribe to MSG because of what Jeremy Lin was doing. And so basically when I Googled the Jordan 55 point game, mm. it wasn't until Jeremy Lin, um, having that run that MSG outdrew any of the, that, that Jordan game, it took till 2012 for MSG network to outdraw that Jordan game, the 55 point game, like the ratings were through the roof. And you think about how long ago that was. I mean, we're talking about, what is that? I'm trying to do math here in my head. 
I mean, we're talking about a, a 17 or 18 year span where they it took them 17 or 18 years to have one game that outdrew Jordan's 55 point game just because that was the attention that it was getting from just, you know, the, the Knicks fans and the people watching the game in the network there. So the idea that, you know, Jeremy Lin lit up Twitter and that that was a massive thing. Mm-hmm. I still kind of remember that and how much attention that was getting. But the idea that like you would probably take that to an entirely different level. If you're talking about Michael Jordan, you're talking about playing the Knicks, you're talking about it being on national TV. Yeah. Like that would be a dream for TV now and for Twitter now for anything like that to happen. And, and between that and, and that was kind of why, frankly, when the Knicks made the finals in 94, aside from other reasons, OJ and everything else that was happening in the middle of that finals with the Rockets, why the ratings were so far down and, and why those that still stands out as one of the lowest rated NBA finals on TV, the Knicks and the, the Rockets, because it was just, you know, it, it happened to be the first season after Jordan retired. Hmm. And so people really wanted to see Jordan. And it was kind of like, it'd be like being fed filet mignon. And all of a sudden, you know, a, a Knicks offense that really doesn't score very much. And, you know, two really slug, slugfest sort of defenses playing against each other, and there's no Michael Jordan. And so, I mean, what he did for ratings, what he did for interest, what he did, what he would have done for something like social media is just insane. I mean, the way people react to the documentary we were talking about that's coming out a year from now should, should give you some sense of just how um, spellbound people were by Michael Jordan at the time. So you mean to tell me that a Jeremy Lin game or the whole Lin Sanity era had a bigger rating than the double nickel? Well, I mean, well, that was a couple things. One, one, it was MSG Network, so I can't remember if that game was. I know the 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 Bulls game with the Pacers was nationally televised. I remember watching that game as a kid. Um, I don't remember the Nick game watching it live, but I wonder if that's because it wasn't televised nationally. Like, if it was only being televised by MSG, then I guess on some level that kind of explains it. But also that Nick fans made it a point to tune in in record numbers to make sure they saw it. Like that tells you about his draw. But also that, you know, Jeremy Lin was the country so much bigger now than it was 17 or 18 years ago, too, that there are more people available to watch than there would have been at the time with Jordan. So, I mean, there's all sorts of things, but I, I just think that um, that that sort of game and that sort of especially if people had known what he was going to do in that game, but it. On some level, it didn't matter. The fact that he was going to play in that game and play against a rival team like that on the road at a place that he loved to play, um, you know, that, that's still one of the games I think a lot of people think about and talk about. And then the ending to it was just an all-time crazy one, too, just because he been slicing and dicing them all game and then decides to make a pass to win the game instead of taking a shot. Um, I'm, looking, I'm looking at it now. March 28th, 1995, the double nickel game became by far the highest rated regular season game in TNT history. So it was on TNT. Okay. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that was all that came up when I Googled really quickly just to see Mm. ratings and kind of where it stood. But that, I mean, MSG was very quick to say that, you know, to put the Jeremy Lin stuff in context, that that was the best rated game that they'd had up to that point. So um, you know, and on some level, like I said, it shouldn't be that surprising. There was a people didn't really completely understand him stepping away the first time, and so the fact that he was going to come back, people weren't going to miss their opportunity to see him again. 
Um, I got one massive question. I'm, I'm going to put three into kind of one, and then maybe two more, then I'll let you go. Um, you know, I, I, I harp on 94, 95, and 90, 97 because I'm pretty sure you know, you know you're, you got, you're a guy who does a lot of research, and hopefully you don't know it so I can kind of catch you off guard. But um, there were times that, you know, Scottie Pippen could have been traded from the Bulls. Um, at least, you know, rumor and innuendo has it that three times he could have been traded from the Bulls. One, um, when I ask you this, I want you to tell me, give me a, a paint me a world with this trade and how the history of the Bulls would have been different or the same. So right now, um, the first one was in 94 that the rumor was that Scotty would have went to Seattle for Sean Kemp and Ricky Pierce. And Sean Kemp yeah. told me that himself when I had him on the show a few years ago. Uh, it was around Dream Team 2 time, summertime, and that was the proposed deal. And he told me that the Seattle fans heard about it and was like, nah, we're not having that. We want Sean Kemp here. And eventually, obviously, the deal did not happen. But Let's say hypothetically, Scottie Pippen goes to Seattle for Sean Kemp and Ricky Pearson. Sean Kemp and Ricky Pearson now with Jordan. And those guys. What kind of what kind of roster are we looking at? I mean, I was reading about that before we hopped on too, and I'm like still kind of blown away that that almost happened. First of all, the Bulls really, really, really wanted that to happen, um, and I mean, you read up on it and. Um, George Carl has kind of, you know, he's written a book, and I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of George Carl, but he, he's written a book, and he's basically laid out, you know, how that came about. Krause wanted to do the deal. The, the, you know, the Sonics weren't really that itching to do it, and you know, Carl was very blunt that they weren't ever putting Sean Kemp on the block. But obviously, when you're making someone like Scottie Pippen available, that you have to consider it. So George Carl. Um, because I think he has the UNC connection. He, he reached out to Michael Jordan, who was still out of the league at the time. And um, Michael basically gave him like a, an honest assessment of it. And he said that, you know, Scotty will make players around him better. Sean Kemp will not. So mm-hmm. at that point, the Sonics considered it. And, and then, like you said, it, it was making the rounds and kind of leaking in the media that they were considering it. And fans were really, really um, in love with Sean Kemp at the time. So, I mean, in hindsight, on the one hand, yeah, uh, I, I mean, I guess it was probably better for the Bulls to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine how that would have changed that team. And I agree that, like, it's pretty incredible that the Bulls were ready to move on from Pippen. Um, you know, and I think Pippen on some level at times was kind of ready to move on from them as well. But the, the idea that they were ready to move on from him right after he'd shown them what he could do with Michael not being there um, is kind of crazy to me just because mul- Pippen was so multifaceted and multi-talented. And Kemp was, you know, a really, really, really good offensive player and yeah. really, really athletic. But, you know, the, Michael was spot on. That Like, I'm not really sure he was going to make your team a whole lot better. And I think he needed good players around him to kind of make a run to the finals, for instance. Um, the Sonics would have been scary on defense if you add Peyton in there with with Pippen and and the, the crazy thing is that like I said the Bulls were the team that really wanted that deal done and George Carl said that the Bulls kept offering to throw in more and more stuff at one point I think the Bulls had wanted the the Sonics first round pick back in return as well oh. and once the Sonics kind of got blowback from their fans 
they they basically said they weren't going to do the deal. And then Krause said, fine, I don't even need your first round pick. Let's just do the deal. And still was offering to kind of up the ante and throw in more to get the deal done. And that that's what I'm saying is like crazy to me that the Bulls were trying to give them away and the Sonics didn't want to do it. And the idea that fan perception would, would ruin that and not just ruin it, but like ruin it from a standpoint of thinking like we might not be making the best deal here. That I think actually might be your best argument for the idea that Scottie Pippen didn't get his proper due mm-hmm. is the idea that, you know, that that was somehow being viewed as like a controversial sort of decision. And again, obviously it's hindsight. We, we know what happened with Sean Kemp eventually and, and the problems that he had. Um, but the idea that like you would need to throw in all these extras and all these sweeteners when Pippen was as great as he was already is a little weird to me. So now we get to we get to ninety five. Um, a year after that, <clears throat> a year after that, uh, we get to the All Star time. All Star is in Phoenix, I believe, in ninety five, and um, there was some rumblings that he, not even rumblings. He was on. He was asked by Craig Sager that you know about being traded or you know to go in a different direction, and Pippen basically said you know he would love a trade from from Chicago, and the rumor back then was. Pippen to Phoenix for Dan Marley, Wesley Person, and maybe some draft picks. So paint me a picture of Scottie Pippen going to Phoenix with Barkley, with Kevin Johnson. Don't really know who else was on that roster. And you might have Pippen on the Suns. You got Dan Marley in person with uh, Chicago, a, a totally different looking team. What do you think? I mean, the thing is, honestly, I don't know. I mean, with the exception of one team that the Bulls really didn't have that many showdowns with, Orlando, like I don't really feel like there was a team that the Bulls were going to struggle with in the East so much to where they couldn't get back to the finals as long as they had Jordan. So obviously for a while, they didn't. And so that maybe that changes the way you're looking at some of this stuff. But as far as you know, what made Pippen and Jordan so special, Obviously, they both were really high-level offensive players. You know, Jordan was the best in the league. Right. Pippen was right up there, too, as he showed when, when Jordan was out. Um, but, you know, I just, like I was saying about what Pippen would have given Seattle, Michael and Scotty, even when Michael got older, was still a really formidable defensive tandem. And so mm. um, the idea of breaking that up, would have hurt the Bulls, but I still feel like if and when they got Michael back, they they would have been fine and still probably good enough to take down anybody. Maybe Orlando would give them trouble just because I think you needed somebody, you know, that could really guard and handle Anthony Hardaway. I think that's a probably a tougher matchup for someone like Michael because of Penny's size and, you know, his versatility and how much younger he was at that point um, could do it, but you didn't want to tire him out chasing him all game. Pippen was capable of doing that. So with the exception of that team, I don't think it would have hurt the Bulls' ability to to get back to the finals. But I don't – you know, it's so weird to talk about stuff in hindsight just because yeah. I don't – none of those things would have made the Bulls better than just having one Scottie Pippen. Um, having a, an assembly of parts, they had decent enough role players. And I think what you found is that you didn't really need great, great role players if you had those two in place. You had you needed a guy or two. And Kukoc, and obviously you had Rodman during the second stretch. But um, you didn't really need much more than that. And I kind of feel like all those other guys, Marley, Marley was really good in his heyday, but yeah. I don't think that those other guys would have given you quite enough to where it would have been anywhere near being worth what Pippen was worth by himself. Before I go to that third potential deal, do you think that 
maybe 5%, 10% of Michael's return to Chicago in 95, you know, was because he kind of heard that Chicago was interested in trading Scottie Pippen. So, again, just playing around here. Do you think he's at home watching TNT, saw that interview, hearing the, the, the rumors and the interviews and TV that Scotty wants out, and then he returns because he doesn't want Scotty to leave. He doesn't want Chicago to trade him. So part of his comeback is because he wants Chicago to keep Pippen, or am I just like reading too much into that? <laughs> uh so I yeah I don't I don't think that that's why um, I could be totally wrong. Michael and Scotty still like each other quite a bit and are still good friends. I remember there was that game. I can't remember what it was a couple of years ago, but um, I think it was in Charlotte. And I think Scotty just kind of showed up and surprised Michael in a suite or a box or something like that. So maybe it was in Chicago. I can't remember. But I mean they're they're still very clearly friends, and um, I I think there was a respect there. For, for Scotty and his game, mm-hmm. I think that respect grew, particularly as he saw what all they were able to do without him. But, I mean, like I said, George Carl asked Michael straight up, like, what would we be getting here if we took Scotty? Would you make this deal if you were us? That Again, that, that is one of those moments where I kind of compare it to what I was just telling you about Pat Riley and that moment where someone is temporarily out of the game and it's something that in some ways – you're watching history play out before your eyes, but don't realize it. So obviously within a year, year and a half of that, we're talking about Scotty and Michael playing against George Carl in the finals. And, you know, in a situation where things would be completely flipped or totally different if, if that deal goes through. And so, um, like I said, you know, unless George Carl was not being totally forthright about it, uh, Michael wasn't, you know, hindering anything or wasn't trying to, serve as like an obstructionist when he was asked an honest opinion about Scottie Pippen and whether he'd help Seattle. He said, yeah, you'd be, he basically said you'd be foolish to value Kemp over Pippen in a situation like that because Pippen will make your whole team better. Whereas uh, Sean Kemp won't. So I'd like to think that Michael wasn't so vested in Scottie or wasn't so uh, particular or partial to the idea of Scottie being a bull that he you know, that he came back because of that. I think that Michael, mm-hmm. you know, did have an honest, legitimate desire just to be back in the sport. And if he'd done that without Scotty, then so be it. I think that, I don't know, maybe this might just be me. Maybe there's reporting on it that I just haven't read. But I think that Michael felt really, really specific about having Phil back. And I kind of feel like the two of them both wanted Scotty back. And at a certain point, it was kind of more like Phil and the players against management so they were kind of all in it together mm. by the end of it but you know I, I don't think that scotty at least before that second run of three titles i don't think that michael felt so passionately about having to play with scotty or making sure that scotty wasn't on his own or that scotty wasn't dealt away that he wanted to come back just for that reason uh did you hear about the 1997 possible deal with with chicago and boston uh, walk me through that one again because I'm sure I'm sure I have that. <laughs> for that. All right, so uh, 97 draft time talks of uh, Chicago and Boston, uh, two potential deals. One in Chicago, Scotty to Boston for the third and the sixth pick, or Scotty Pippen to Boston for Antoine Walker, Eric Williams, 
and the third pick, and that was both reported by the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune. So I guess it wasn't that much of a rumor. It was just it's out there. So third is sixth for, for Pippen or Walker and Eric Williams and the third pick for Scottie Pippen. So imagine Scottie Pippen in uh, the white and green <laughs> with the Celtics. Few things would have been different. I'll tell you that. It's just so weird to, to hear all this stuff in hindsight because it's just, you know, I guess maybe the reason I think about that way is like, Nothing in hindsight could have made the Bulls better than they already were. You know, maybe, maybe they win a few more games and they win the championship. But other than that, nothing was going to take the championship away, um, you know, with the team they actually had and rolled out there. So, I mean, that that's what I guess when you think back on it, it's kind of like most mind boggling about it and probably does kind of look bad and not speak ill of the dead. But like with Krause and the management team there, it's just that. Like, why were you so trying so hard to shake something like this up? They were always really big on the idea of having, being able to pivot to a younger core. And so they, they knew, obviously, that all those guys were aging at a certain point and why Krause was ready to kind of turn things over, to put in their new, their own coach with Tim Floyd and to have the baby bulls with Eddie Curry and Tyson Chandler. But, like, you don't want to kick out a championship-level team prematurely. And, and obviously that's the question that a lot of fans have and are still angry about in some cases. But um, obviously you, you want to make things work. You want to try to get good return on guys before you kind of um, use them all the way up. But, I mean, if you've got a championship team that you can, you know, ring another two or three championships out of, which obviously they did right. with Pippen and Jordan and obviously with Rodman as well, um, you shouldn't be in a rush to get rid of them. And obviously they didn't get rid of them. But it's just crazy to think that they were, like, trying to get the Sonics to take Pippen off their hands. And they would have gotten a, a very good player, maybe a great player in return. But um, it's really hard to hear about it in hindsight as someone that was so in love with the Bulls because you couldn't have really made those teams better. You could have made the other teams better. Yeah. All those teams would have probably been better in some way. Or at least you, it at least opens up the possibility of the unknown. Maybe they, maybe they would have been good enough to win a championship. You take Pippen away from the Bulls, and all of a sudden you get someone like that to guard Michael Jordan uh, for the Sonics, and you have him next to Gary Payton. I don't know. All of a sudden, maybe the Bulls have trouble trying to win against the Sonics in that finals, if yeah. assuming they make the finals. So I don't know. Uh, there's all sorts of things that become way more interesting, but it's so crazy to think that the Bulls were actually really considering that and really talking that through. And in some cases probably would have done that stuff had, had things not fallen through. Right. Uh, two more real quick. Um, we all know they went 72 and 10 in 96. But Chris, do you have any idea who they lost to out of those 10 games? <laughs> I've seen it before. I've, I know somebody did. Uh, I don't know if it's SB Nation or another website that at one point, it might, I don't even know if they're doing it this season or if it was last year, but someone was kind of doing – um, an in real time sort of thing on the Bulls and um, doing like a long feature story on each one of the 10 games they lost, which was kind of cool hmm. to talk to the players or like coaches from the teams that beat them um, and what they recall about those games. So all I remember, really remember, uh, I know they lost a game that year to Vancouver. Um, and I know that they lost to the Knicks. And I want to say that was the first was that the first full year that Van Gundy had taken over or one of the first full years he'd taken over? And I know that they kind of came and blew the Bulls out of the water 
um, in one of Van Gundy's first games. I think they lost Van Gundy's first game as the coach that year, but um, in the middle of a season when he took over for Nelson, but they, they just blew the doors off the Bulls one game by like 28 or by 30 points or something like that. So I know that happened. Um, I mean, they lost a handful of games to teams that really had no business beating them, but you know, they, it wasn't possible for them to win every single game, but they damn near tried and damn near did it. Um, I'm going to look at it now. Cause you mentioned Vancouver when now I, I wrote, I wrote who they lost. I wrote down who they lost to, but I did not see Vancouver as one. Losses, I maybe I'm mixing them up with another expansion team, so maybe the Raptors. They but... lost to the Raptors. Okay, so maybe it was that, okay. but yeah. Um, I, I really can't remember. Let me try to see if I can Google it really quick. Um, those, those 10 losses, um, eight of them were on the road. Two okay. Um, Orlando, Seattle, Indiana, Phoenix, Denver, Miami, New York, Toronto, all on the road. And at home, they lost to Charlotte and again, Indiana. Okay. So, I can't find it. And I really wish I could just to kind of give credit to whoever it is I'm talking about. Somebody had a really cool feature running on this, though, where they looked at every one of the 10 losses they had that year, which is kind of like I, you know, I, I think oral histories have kind of gotten overdone in the media the last five, 10 years. Um, I think they're incredibly appropriate sometimes. I think other times, you know, it, as a writer, I look at it as something where it, it basically looks like a feature story, but it's like a, a, not a lazy way, but it's definitely not as intensive to just kind of take the quotes and arrange them mm-hmm. as it would be to write it and kind of give it a, a full narrative and to do it that way. Um, but I thought that that was a really creative way to kind of lay out that season. And, you know, I think it was, I think it was either last year or maybe the year before. And so it was like a 20 year look back at that team, uh, and how they did it, and you know, what the quotes that came out and how much did the Bulls care about losing games like those um, when obviously it didn't matter, but it was still, you know, they, they got the record, so it did matter in some ways. But mm-hmm. um, I only remember a few things about that that year. I just remember coming home nights from church and stuff like that. The first thing I would do if we didn't hear the score in the car was to – I'd come home and I'd turn on the TV and flip to ESPN just to see the bottom line and the scrolling – scores and stuff like that just to see if the Bulls would win. And I felt like every single time I came home, they were winning. And it just felt – it didn't feel like real life to see a team that was going to win that many games Mm -hmm. and to win every single night. Two more, Chris, before I let you go. Um, I think it's kind of weird to know that we are going to get the All-Star game in Chicago in 2020. Very um, weird. For the first time since 1988. I mean, you would think, you know, you can ask you know, any NBA fan, so, you know, where do you think the All-Star game has been held? I'm pretty sure some would say, you know, yeah, probably Chicago a few times and New York and L.A. and Houston. And, and when you look at it, it's like, you mean to tell me you haven't had an All-Star game in Chicago since 1988, going to be 32 years to the time that we that there's there's been an All Star game in Chicago and the, the 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 United Center has been around since '94, and this is the first time they're gonna have the All Star game um, next year in 2020. I think it's kind of weird, ironic that it hasn't been there. Um, I'm happy they are gonna have it there, but it, do do you know any reason why it hasn't been in Chicago for so long? Yeah, no, the Bulls didn't. Reinsdorf didn't want it. Um, 
I mean, the, the weird thing is that they basically Reinsdorf, and it, it's weird because Reinsdorf also owns the White Sox, and they've had an All Star game at, um, I guess you know, like I said, Chicagoans are weird about the stadium thing. So like Comiskey, U.S. Cellular, guaranteed rate, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. they've had one in recent enough years. Um, the Bulls haven't, but the reason they didn't want it, and I won't say they as Reinsdorf. You look it up. He said he didn't want the All Star Game, and this was only five or six years ago that he was quoted as saying this. Wow! Because he he complained because he basically said it's so run by the league that basically the last time that they had it, he remembered fans complaining a ton because basically season ticket holders don't really get to be involved and don't get to go to everything that's involved in it. True. Because the league has so many. Um, commitments that they have as far as different people around the league, corporate sponsors, different things where they are guaranteed to get tickets for the game. And so it ends up being something where they basically have to have a lottery for the ticket giveaway and for the different events and stuff mm. for the season ticket holders who are paying and so, you know, thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars to go to these games. So he didn't want it for that reason, if I remember correctly. Um, and so I was really surprised actually when it he literally said they'd have to force me to take the all-star game. The, those were his quotes. And so the idea now that they are getting one is really fascinating to me because it makes me feel like the league might have forced them to do it. Either that or his tune changed for some reason. But he had been very clear in an interview where he said he did not want the all-star game. And, and, and frankly, in, in most cases, when teams are really, really adamant about things like that, I remember I did a story – uh, maybe three years ago, maybe four, uh, at the Wall Street Journal, where I wrote about the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, I remember one year the Knicks were opening a season against the Bucks, but they were opening at the Garden. And I, I don't know what prompted me to look at it, or maybe I saw a tweet or something, but it was something about how the Bucks were starting like their 27th straight season on the road. And I was like, how is that possible? Like the league has so many different things in place computer programs and systems that like randomize the schedule. It obviously gives them the Christmas day games they want mm-hmm. and the big marquee games they want on certain dates. But other than that, the league randomizes everything so that everybody basically gets the same number of back to backs. Every team gets about the same amount of rest. Every team travels about the same amount, um, you know, as far as mileage and distance and you don't have crazy road trips. Um, and every team from year to year is going to, you know, have one day, one year where they open at home and another year where they open on the road. How does the team get 27 straight years like that? And so then when I got to talking to the league office and they put me in touch with their schedule, scheduling czar, they basically said, well, the Bucks have basically done this on purpose. Every year we go in and we ask the teams to give us the arenas to ask us to give, ask them to give us a schedule of every available home date they have where it's not conflicting with a concert or with some other event. Right. And obviously if there are other things that they have going on, we, they might know that, but we don't as the league. So we don't pressure them. So every year when we ask the Bucks to put, give us their schedule of open dates that they have at home and open dates that they've got the arena available, they always block out that first week of the season um, so that their first available date is a weekend because they don't trust in people's ability in Milwaukee to make it out to games during the week. They've never drawn well during the week. Mm. And so they always want that first home game to be closer to a sellout. So they make it a Saturday night. So, you know, the league has never really forced teams to 
behave differently than they want to behave about hosting things, whether it's a home game, whether it's an all-star game or whatever. Um, so I, I, I would love to kind of hear what changed in Reinsdorf's mind. Maybe the league did pressure them and say, you really need to take an all-star game. You haven't done it in a while. Chicago's a major market. It's in the middle of the country. It's easy for people to get to. Um, so I don't know why. I, I, I couldn't tell you why that happened. But, um, but he had been very adamant about saying that he did not want an all-star game because to him it was a hassle. And basically there's no money to be made off of that for him because the league is already kind of earmarking these tickets for people. It's not the Bulls selling them. It's not the Bulls profiting from them. Will you go? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I go to the All-Star Games anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm getting ready to go in a couple weeks. Oh, nice. Last year was the first time I haven't gone in the six or seven years I've covered the league. Um, girlfriend scheduled a trip. Uh, she's, she's really big on trying to schedule things whenever she's, like, online constantly. And if she sees anything in her travel groups about there being, like, an online glitch with an airline mm-hmm. where a flight that normally costs $800 is only 150 or 115 or it's 200 round trip or 300 round trip she you know she loves to travel so she looks for stuff like that so she called me one day when i was in the middle of a deadline and i kind of told her i don't have time to really you know consider this right now just go ahead and book whatever it is and she did it without me being aware of the fact that it was right in the middle of the all-star break so we went to bali last year Uh, i was right in the middle of the all-star game and, you know, I was kind of upset on the one hand because I was like, man, I'm missing the All-Star game. But mm-hmm. when you really think about it, it's the one time of year where you could – if you're a reporter and you travel a lot, where you know you're not missing anything as far as, like, news happening or something. You know, last night, Victor Oladipo tearing his leg up. Uh, you know you're not missing anything like that. If anything, you're missing an All-Star game where guys aren't playing mm. their absolute hardest, where guys aren't getting hurt especially now that they've moved the trade deadline ahead of the all-star game. You're not missing trades. So it's kind of a, it can be a relaxing time to kind of get away from stuff and unplug for at least a couple of days. But, uh, but no, I'll definitely be at the one in Chicago for no other reason than the fact that it's here, but I generally go to the all-star games anyway. Last one I got for you, Chris, first of all, I do want to thank you for spending over an hour and a half with me. No problem. Retro throwback, Chicago bulls, uh, NBA, uh, NBA stuff. Um, the last one I have for you is plain and simple, man. Which one, which is the most impressive three-peat, 91 to, 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 to 93 or 96 to 98? And throw in the the tidbit of the acquisition of Dennis Rodman to that second three-peat and how it changed the dynamic of that uh, second, second three-peat squad. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I would probably, I, I think the first three-peat, was more impressive just because, again, and maybe it was just perception, but I think that, uh, you know, adding Rodman, which I, I guess we see that at times now. We kind of saw it with Boogie, um, although his, his was an injury more so than anything. But, you know, when you get these bad boys sort of players, um, teams are reluctant to add them to the roster because of concerns about fit or behavior or what have you. The Bulls were stable enough, even though clearly with their front office, they're kind of unstable too. But, they were at least dominant enough to where they could afford to take on that sort of talent. And, you know, guys that thought that they could police him enough to where he wasn't a a, a horrible off-court distraction um, to where he was disrupting their success. So, I mean, I think he obviously made them way stronger and at some level kind of made them unbeatable. Um, And the fact that, you know, they're breaking records as far as the games they're winning and stuff like that. Um, 
So I would say that the first three-peat was more impressive, but also the fact, too, that um, as far as perception was involved, that you you didn't know yet that Michael Jordan was going to kind of be this incredible or become this great um, and that he was going to kind of take the league by storm in the fashion that he did. And so and over time, I mean, when you look at those teams that they beat and they play, um, maybe those teams weren't as impressive. And I think that's kind of the interesting dynamic between he and LeBron is that the teams that the Bulls were beating, you know, they weren't just, you know, these great, great NBA teams. Uh, obviously, the Warriors have been more dominant than any of the teams that the Bulls played during the 90s. Uh, but still, you know, just having the grit to kind of beat, to overcome the Pistons and then take out the Knicks consistently to beat the Pacers all the time. The Cavs had some good teams in those years. Um, so the, the fact that they did that, did that three times in a row with the cast that they had, where it was basically just Jordan and Pippen, and you had a, you know, a handful of other guys that might knock down an open shot here or there, but not many people that could really handle the ball or do much else. Um, that's pretty impressive in hindsight. I think adding Rodman... It was really the first time, along with Kukoc and those guys too, it was really the first time that they really had a ton of talent outside of those two guys and maybe Kukoc um, or, or someone that was kind of the best at what he did in some way. And so I think that, you know, over time, I think they got stronger because teams were kind of too stupid or too afraid to pick up Dennis Rodman. Um, but those, those first three championships, you know, had they been beaten one of those years, I don't think it would have just totally taken – people by surprise whereas if they'd lost in the 90s people would have gasped and been like how on earth did you know that this team managed to beat the bulls or how did jordan not win this um and it tells you the perception changed so much of how we thought about a lot of that stuff well hopefully i i encourage you to you know write some stuff about the chicago bulls i know you're a very you know research kind of guy maybe i give you some ideas going forward so if you do you're welcome <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Yeah, no, I, I, I told you about some stuff off air that I'm working on nice. that makes some of the research necessary. But I'm mm. I'm looking forward to digging into it. And I think really, you know, I don't think we're ever going to see anything like the '90s NBA again. Mm. Um, between the NBA on NBC and you know the fact that you did have Jordan there and uh, the way that teams are kind of allowed to beat up on on him and just in general. Um, you know, and the fact that the league tried really hard to get a, uh, to get away from that sort of perception that they didn't want the league to become so physical and to become basically football uh, with these 83 to 81 games. And, you know, frankly, the Knicks had matchups that were lower scoring than that, yeah. uh, whether it was against Miami or, or, you know, teams like that. So they, they wanted to get away from that between the Pistons and, and the Knicks of that era. So I don't think we'll see it again. I think it was kind of a unique time, and I think it's fun to talk about. Chris Herring, always a pleasure, man. You can find him on Twitter at Herring underscore NBA, senior NBA writer for ESPN slash 538. Always a pleasure, my man. You too, man. I really appreciate you. Thank you. All right, man. Take it easy. You too. All right.